Nurse.com is proud to be a sponsor of the Ask Nurse Alice podcast. As the premier destination for nursing knowledge and resources, Nurse.com supports your passion for healthcare with an unrivaled collection of tools, articles, and courses tailored for the nursing community. Get your daily dose of things you need to know for your nursing journey. Discover the world of nursing like never before with Nurse.com. Empower your practice, advance your career, and enrich your knowledge. Nurse.com. It's your nurse life all in one place. You're listening to Ask Nurse Alice, presented by Nurse.org, where Alice Benjamin combines no-nonsense advice with thought-provoking interviews. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Ask Nurse Alice podcast, the show where we talk about anything and everything nursing and healthcare related. I'm your host, Alice Benjamin, clinical nurse specialist, family nurse practitioner, and chief nursing officer at Nurse.org. And I have a question for you guys. Whether you've been a practicing nurse, a new nurse, or maybe you're a nursing student, uh, how many times have you entered the clinical uh, hospital, you know, bedside with the patient, and you start to see that your patient's not doing too well, not doing too hot? In fact, they're kind of deteriorating right in front of you. That blood pressure's dropping, that heart rate's going up, their breathing's looking funky, their sets going down, I mean, their mentation is changing, and stuff doesn't seem like it's going in the right direction. So what do you do? Well, let me tell you, back in the days, we used to call the charge nurse, get our colleagues around the bedside, page the physician, and it was like a waiting game. Like, I need orders. I need to know what to do. And unfortunately, because there would sometimes be a lag in time, there would be a delay in care to the patients. But that's changed. Now we have so many more resources available to us at bedside. And in fact, you guys probably, especially if you're a newer nurse, have just been born into the era of always having a rapid response team or nurse available to you. And thankfully, we have that now. So today's guest is a rapid response nurse and an educator and the host of the Rapid Response RN podcast. Please welcome to the show, Sarah Lorenzini. So happy to be here, Alice. Thank you for having me on your show. Thanks for being here. I mean, this is an important topic. Although I like to, you know, sometimes people are so focused on like the code blue and then like getting ROSC and like just that part. But, and the nurses that come in and kind of come in and save the patient before they get to that point, don't get all the, you know, the credit they deserve. And I think that's really where rapid response nurses, um, they come in like superheroes and then they kind of fade on out. And actually that's kind of what you are in a sense, Sarah. So, I mean, you're a rapid response nurse. Before we get started, we always like to ask our guests and our listeners, Tell us about why you chose nursing and a little bit about your journey. Sure. So I've been a nurse for almost 20 years. It's crazy to say that. But my whole life, I knew I wanted to help people, whatever that meant. Maybe I'll be a teacher. Maybe I'll be a doctor because I didn't know what nurses did, honestly, back in the day. And then in high school, I volunteered in the hospital to like see doctors in action. And what I saw was nurses caring for patients and educating them and giving their medications and all the things that I could see myself doing to help people. And so I went to nursing school because I just wanted to find a way to help. I've always been intrigued by like the whole birth process. I was like, oh, that's what I'll do. I'll be a midwife and I'll be like birthing babies in Haiti somewhere. That's that's, (laughs) that's what I thought I wanted to do. And uh, while in nursing school, I applied to the labor delivery floor and they just would not hire me. Like, they would not give me an interview. I mean, I was young and like, I just couldn't get a job there. So you know what? I'll just get a job in the ER because at least the ER has pediatrics 
And while working in the ER, I actually just fell in love with taking care of patients and their families in crisis. I never saw myself as an ER nurse, but that was definitely what I was wired to do. I love the ER environment. I love being with people on the worst day of their life and kind of bringing some calm and some hope and some clarity. And so while working in the ER, I was like, man, maybe maybe I'll be an ER nurse. I got to my labor and delivery clinicals and realized that's definitely not what I wanted to do. It was my dream job, and it's so different than what I expected. Lots of people screaming at each other, and like the tensions are high, and sometimes it's really, really sad. And I was like, oh, no, this is not what I thought it would be. So I, I landed in the ER. So a new grad, right out of nursing school, started in the ER. I absolutely love that role. I soon became the preceptor and charge nurse, did lots of education in the ER, decided I wanted to go back and get my master's degree in nursing. And all my professors are like, you can't just have one area of expertise. Like You have to expand your horizons a little bit. So I went and worked at the cardiac ICU at a really big, busy trauma center. Got to work with LVADs and ECMO patients and all that cool, the cool gadgets. Loved cardiac ICU. Finally finished that master's degree. Became a nursing professor for a short period of time. Love the students. I wasn't quite ready to leave the bedside, though. So I came back as the ER nurse educator, actually in the ER that had trained me. Uh, did that for five years. I love the nurse educator role because it really is a good mix of being at the bedside with the staff and the patients, but also creating um, education. And then COVID hit. <laughs> and um, with COVID, I was like, man, I do not want to teach about donning and doffing PPE anymore. I'm blue in the face talking about COVID. I want to be in the trenches caring for these patients. I don't care if I'm sweating them with PPE. And that's when I saw the negative effects of not having a dedicated rapid response team, like having to pull the ICU charge nurse away from ICU to go care for all these patients that were crashing. A lot more were crashing because of COVID. And so I went to our hospital's leadership and said, could I start a rapid response team? We need this so badly. I have I have background on this. I actually did rapid response as well for a couple of years at the hospital where I worked, cardiac ICU. And they're like, sure, you can start it by yourself. <laughs> and then if you can prove efficacy of it, then we'll give you more FTEs. Needless to say, a couple months then, it was very obvious that we needed a, a dedicated team, a full team 24-7. And so now I have a team of nine. I love doing rapid response. It's been such a joy to get to bring all of my favorite things into one job. I get to be you know, a bedside nurse. I get to do ER, like intervention, fast, figure out what's going on with them uh, type role. And also the critical thinking aspect of being an ICU nurse. And then also the educator aspect, getting to teach nurses the bedside, what is an emergency and what is not and how to respond. But then after doing the rapid response role for a while, oh, then I miss being an educator officially. <laughs> so that's why I started my podcast, um, Rapid Response RN. And then every episode, I share a real life story, a real patient I responded to, um, obviously HIPAA appropriate, no patient identifiers listed. And then I break down like the pathophysiology, the pharmacology, the nurse's role, and all the stuff that I love to teach about um, through the lens of a story about a real patient. So does that answer your question? That's how I started as a nurse. I thought I wanted to help people. And then I ended up becoming rapid response nurse and podcast host. Here I am. Well, that sounds like a wonderful and amazing journey. First, I'll say you definitely followed your passion because I mean, it just shows, it just shines through you that you're really passionate about the work that you do. Um, you enjoy your specialty. And guys, that's really, really important. I mean, there's a million things you can do in nursing. So why not do what makes you the happiest? And I can tell that you're really happy about this. It's very fulfilling. And you said a lot of things, but let me just go back a little bit. So it sounds like you were working in the emergency room in some other role uh, while going to nursing school, got exposure, and then decided that that would be the area you went into. 
But, and I'll say this, you started in ER as a new grad, which it used to be, I don't know, it kind of goes in waves. Like first they don't want to hire new grads in specialties, then they do, then they don't, then they do. So, it, but sometimes it's very hard for new grads to get into emergency because they want you to come in with some uh, experience with, you know, assessments, medications, and things like that. So for one, you started as a new grad, but then it sounds like you became charge nurse and preceptor, then educator eventually in the, in the ER. Yeah. So talk about guys, you can do it. I mean, you definitely can. <laughs> to be honest, I don't know why they hired me. I was 19 years old when I graduated nursing school. I was so young. I did dual enrollment in high school, but they did. <laughs> and then I remember them coming to me like, you know what, Sarah, we want you to be a preceptor. I'm thinking, um, I still have lots of questions, actually, myself. <laughs> I don't know if I should be a preceptor. But, uh, oh, my gosh, I love being a preceptor. I loved uh, challenging myself, actually, because I always remember Dusty was the person I was orienting. And Dusty would ask me a question. And I'd be like, that is, a, that is a really good question. We're going to find out the answer together. <laughs> so I hope I precepted him well. But I really enjoyed teaching. And they'd be like, Sarah, we have no charge nurses weekend. Can you charge? I was like, um, I am... 20 years old guys like I can't even drink alcohol legally yet I don't know if I should be the person in charge like Sarah you'll be great you're a natural born leader people look to you as a, as a resource like you can totally handle it <laughs> I'm thinking to myself seriously because <laughs> I'm so new at all this but um you know you you rise to the occasion there is definitely challenges being still the youngest person in the ER and having to be charge nurse over some of the people that actually trained me that was a challenge and then also there's this scary moment of like the angry family wants to speak with the nurse in charge. And here I come in five foot three. Hi, I'm, I'm Sarah. I'm the charge nurse. But, you know, I, I recognize my deficiency. And so I fill the gap. I read books. I went to conferences. I figured out ways to be a good leader, despite my stature and my age and my lack of experience. And Every shift that I would come into work as charge nurse, just needless to say, my you're just going to charge this one Saturday turned into now you're the full time charge nurse pretty pretty soon. But every shift, I was just like, you know what? I want to help not just my patients but the whole department. So what can I do to invest in my staff to build them up to be their resource to be their support to help them take the best care of their patients? And that was just what drove me all shift long. Whenever EMS are lighting up on the wall and the EMS radio is going off and there's people, I mean, you know, you know, ER is. <laughs> It's really challenging, but I was just like, you know what? This is what this is what I'm called to do, and so I've got to, I've got to stand up and face it and and do it to the best of my ability. So that's how I ended up being a charge nurse at a whopping 20 years old. <laughs> well, I Sarah, I think you touched on a lot of great points. So you know, one, yes, experience and length of time being a nurse is important. However, there are characteristics that are necessary and required to be a good preceptor, to be a good charge nurse. It has to deal with, you know, things like communications, uh, styles of leadership, being resourceful, recognizing that you won't know everything. I don't know everything, but I know where to go for information. So, you know, those are the things and the characteristics that we people look for. So if anyone's aspiring to be charge nurse, uh, preceptor, things like that, recognize that, you know, even if you don't have years and years and boatloads of experience, you can precept someone. OK, you can precept someone and then you can, you know, start off as a relief charge nurse, gain some experience. You you don't know what you don't know. So once you get in the position, it's real time learning and just, you know, allow yourself some grace that I'm building this plane as I'm flying it. But, you know, there, <laughs> there are resources in the hospital that can help you. Like you're not expected to know everything. So that's good. OK. And so so you mentioned that. And then so it sounds like you were working in the emergency room. You 
as a natural born leader and the educator that you are, you were looking, you kind of found opportunities for improvement to help build staff, to improve education, which also, you know, empowers the staff. And when we can, when we have a, a staff that feels confident, educated, they're trained, they actually can work more efficiently. They're happier, better patient outcomes and things like that. So I think you were kind of, uh, you were being molded a little bit to enter into the educator role because I'll also say this, I, my, my mass, my first master's is in nursing education and clinical nurse specialist. Not, you can have very, very knowledgeable nurses, but they're not always the best preceptors or the best educators. I'm sorry. I just had to say it. We love you, but you know, right. everyone has their niche and their thing that they're good at. Okay. So you're doing that. And you've also had some experience in, in uh, critical care, cardiology and those type of things. And then you kind of circled back and you, you mentioned something where you saw that there was an, um, an inefficient system when it came to rapid response. And the rap, calling rapid response team. So for those of you who may not know, rapid response teams, they kind of started in the United States around 2014 uh, when there was the 100,000 Lives campaign, which is a, was an initiative to decrease in-hospital mortality and morbidity by the Institute of Healthcare Improvement. And so, you know, became one of the initiatives to improve the quality of care. And then in 2008, the Joint Commission adopted it as a national patient safety goal. And then hospitals were required to kind of implement these systems to enable healthcare staff members to directly request additional assistance from specialty trained individuals when the patient was deteriorating. So hence rapid response team. So that's kind of when that started. I remember doing a travel assignment and they didn't have a formal rapid response team. What would happen was the ICU nurse would get called and go to the bedside to whatever med surge or teleunit to kind of just lay another set of eyes on the patient. But then you take an ICU nurse away from the unit the ICU guys, that's already like the sickest of the sick patients. We need all eyeballs and all people uh, in ICU. So it was, that's kind of inefficient. So it sounds like you saw the same thing. And then you said, hey, I think I got a plan for this. I think we can fix this. And so, Sarah, tell us what that conversation was like, because it's like you, inv- you invented your own, you invented your own job, right? Yeah. Okay. Basically, I was very fortunate to have leadership that trusted me to do it well. So I actually worked on a rapid response team at a big teaching hospital. We were very staffed. We had like six nurses on staff for rapid response every shift. It was like a 1,200, 1,400-bed hospital. So we were, we were pretty busy. So I did that for a while. Then I came to a smaller hospital, which I love my hospital, but it is smaller. And so they didn't have that dedicated team. And I just thought to myself, oh my gosh, people are probably not even going to call rapid responses until it's too late. Because like, oh, well, I don't want to bother the ICU nurse or I don't want to pull them away from another patient that could be sicker. I'll wait until it's really, really bad. And then I'll call. But with COVID, you wait till it's really, really bad and they're coding. And so we also know from the research that that nursing intuition piece is often the very first indicator, even before vital signs start showing there's a decline. I I can't tell you how many rapid responses I go to or we call them nurse consults sometimes. The nurse is like, Sarah, I don't actually know what's wrong, but they didn't breathe like this yesterday. Their belly didn't look like this yesterday. The way they're kind of interacting with me is different than yesterday. Their eyes look different than yesterday. Something is different than this morning. The nurse intuition says something's wrong and the vital signs are still okay. But we can get in there and get interventions before they go septic, before they go into shock, before they code. And that's the best outcome for the patient. And so not only does making a dedicated response team make it easier for the ICU charge nurse (laughs) because they don't have to leave their patients or their team, but it also just empowers the bedside nurse with, I can speak up and share my voice before the patient's actually crashing. Before they turn blue, when I just know something's wrong, I can let 
I can let the rock response team know. So we built our team not just to be a response team, but also to be a proactive team. So I love responding to emergencies. That's my jam. But just as much, I love preventing emergencies. So we'll actually go see patients um, that have a high MUSE or modified early warning score. So when there are indicators of decline, we'll go see them before that and kind of get interventions going. We have this process called nurse consult where nurse can text us or call us and say, hey, I'm, what did, I just want to put this patient on your radar. We'll come see the patient and kind of figure out what we can do preventatively to prevent the code. I'll tell you, of those nurse consults, about 40% of them do get upgraded to PCU or ICU. Because sure enough, the nurse was spot on. Something was wrong. We draw a lactate and it's 14. Or, you know, we draw a troponin and it's through the roof. Or, I mean, something is brewing, but they just hadn't quite indicated yet the bottle signs. And so that just empowering nurses to know you can speak up when you're concerned, not wait till the patient's like coding on you. That has made a big impact. So just to give you some stats from our local hospital, prior to the initiation of the rap response team, we saw about 60 to 80 rap responses a month. And over half of the code blues that happened happened outside of critical care. So on the med search floors. Once we started the dedicated team, the amount of rapids got up to almost 200 a month. So people are calling a lot more because they're not afraid to you know, pull the rapid response nurse away because we don't have a team. And I have like a dedicated team that I'm caring for. So they, they called more. And because they called more, code blues went down dramatically. Now it's about 20% of code blues happen outside of critical care. So I'm not running to many code blues. I'm actually running to a lot of rapid responses. So when nurses are empowered to call early and call often, we can prevent the code blues and keep the sick patients in the ICU and not wait till they get too sick on the floor. So I'm really proud of our success, not just for the patient outcomes, but also just because for nurses to feel empowered that they have someone to call if they're concerned. They're not, you know, stuck on an island by themselves waiting for the doctor to call them back. If they're concerned, they got a backup team ready to come and respond. So I really enjoy that aspect of the role. And that's good to know. And for those who are listening, are like, I don't know what Muse is. Usually it's something that's built into your um, nowadays computer charting, right? So it picks up uh, certain pieces of information that could indicate that your patient might be declining. But as Sarah mentioned, sometimes you can pick up on things before those indicators can you know, flag you in the chart. And I'll say this, when rapid response teams initiated, they didn't have new systems yet, guys. It was still kind of, they just kind of laid out this criteria like a policy, like if heart rate greater than this or less than this, if respiration is less than this or more than this. And you didn't always have that right in front of you, but you're right. You do kind of have a gut feeling like, "Uh uh-uh, something's not right. It's so subtle. And a lot of research shows that patients, at least at a minimum, eight to 12 hours before, you know, they, they code or things like that, there are subtle signs of deterioration. And if you're, if you have a high uh, volume of patients, you're not able to see your, you know, when you have a lot of patients, you can't do the surveillance and the interventions that you need. You can miss things like that. So that's where, you know, electronic charting systems finally got into the game and like, you know, we need to help put some tools in place for nurses um, to help identify those things. So this is great. And I'm glad that you said call often. We would much rather you call and it be nothing versus you call at the last minute because you don't know how many times I've heard rapid response from 501. Then literally two minutes later, code blue, code 501. <laughs> it's like, what happened? And then maybe this is for another podcast, but typically hear those a lot during round right around shift change when everyone's making those last rounds I, I you know that's that's unfortunate but it sounds like Sarah you you know are working with all of your experience we're able to uh, identify and you know demonstrate to the hospital that this is a resource that can not only improve patient outcomes decrease code blues is probably more cost effective and supports the nurses and there's probably a plethora of other things 
that support the work that you do. Now, I want to talk a little bit about some of the barriers for rapid responses, because as you mentioned in some of the stats that you shared that, you know, a certain amount, the majority of those, it sounds like, happened outside of ICU. Because in the ER, I'm thinking back, where I work in the ER, we don't necessarily call rapid response. And in some ICUs, they don't call rapid response because they usually have like the intensivists and like folks that are right there and they're accustomed to crashing sick patients. But in our med surge, in our tele, in our progressive care units, in our step-down units, they might not always have those resources. So talk to us a little bit about what might prevent or delay a nurse from what, from initiating a rapid response. So the biggest thing I hear a lot is, I wasn't sure if this is an emergency or not. So that's why we made the nurse consult option. So if you're like, oh, for sure, this is concerning, call a rapid response. But if nurses weren't sure, we said, just go ahead and text us or call us and say, can you come when you get a second to come see my patient? That way you don't have to activate the entire team, you know, the ICU doctor, phlebotomy, respiratory therapy, x-ray. It's just just a critical care nurse. We are here to support you, to help you hear on your patient. So that has kind of mitigated that concern because they're like, oh, I don't have to call the entire team and be embarrassed in case it was an emergency. Instead, I can just call the rapid response So that's been one thing, one barrier that we've kind of removed. The other one is we actually had nurses that were afraid to call because they didn't want the doctor to be upset that they called a rapid. So that one I have some words for. <laughs> so the rapid response process is a nurse-driven process. Yes, the doctor can say call a rapid response, but any nurse, nurse tech, patient safety attendant, like anyone, respiratory therapy, if anyone finds a patient that's declining, they should and can call a rapid response. And so even if the doctor's like, no, 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 this doesn't need a rapid response, I tell the nurses, go ahead and call it. If you want another pair of hands to help with your patient, call a rapid response. If you want another set of eyes on your patient, call a rapid response. Because I have been to rapid responses and the nurses told me the doctor said not to call because the patient's oxygen saturation was still fine. But I knew their breathing had changed and that's why I called you. And sure enough, yeah, the SAT says 92 on a non-rebreather at 100% flush on the wall, the patient's breathing 50 times a minute. So yes, right now, somehow they are compensating with all the support we're giving them. But we're going to have to intubate that patient because they cannot do this for much longer. And so when you call the doctor on the phone, they're not there. They can't see what you're seeing. So call us to the bedside so that we can come alongside you, see what you're seeing and intervene if needed for the patient. So I just want to dispel the myth that like it's a if the doctor said, call it, call it. Or if the doctor said, don't call it, don't call it. Just a reminder, the doctor ain't your boss. He don't sign your paychecks. You work for the patients and they work for the patients. And you guys are supposed to work together to do that. But if you have a concern for your patient, man, speak up and say something. I would so much rather you call and come to find out. It's actually not an emergency. We can just provide some education about why, why I'm not concerned. Then for you to be like, oh, I hate to bug them or I hate to upset the doctor. And then now the patient's coding and it's so much harder to turn things around. So I just want to dispel the myth that you have to wait for the doctor to approve of your rapid response certification. If you're concerned, let us know. We are happy to come. You do not need a doctor's order to call a rapid response. And I think, and, you know, I'm just going to speak in general here, but I think some, we got to leave the ego at the door. I think some of that is ego. Like I can't manage my patient or I don't know what I'm doing. It's not a personal attack on any of the healthcare providers. Actually, my ultimate goal, as all of our goals are, is to improve the patient outcome. So if I believe there's a concern and it's not being addressed, let's bring, you know, let's let's bring all of our resources to the bedside that we can. So if a particular provider 
may not be concerned about something, okay, well, I'm still concerned. So I'd rather, you know, get another set of eyeballs as kind of a, a second opinion than not. And it'd be too late because once it's too late, guys, you know, time is tissue. We can't get that's we can't get time back sometimes. So rather over respond than under respond. I think that's really, really important. And if you are having any difficulties or pushback from any of the providers at your facility, I think that's important to, you know, have that discussion at your unit practice council with your manager, your director, or some maybe someone needs to talk to that provider about, hey, this is what we have in place because you're not going to be able to cover, you know, see everyone and be there at every moment of the hour. These are tools to help the nurses provide the best care that they they can. So I think that's really, really important. Now, um, you mentioned that nurses can call as a consult. I love that idea. I love that idea because you're right. We have varying levels of knowledge and experience when it comes to care and, you know, nurses and what their knowledge and uh, comfort level is. For example, I've worked ICU and I've worked ER. I've seen some really sick patients and I'm not sweating bullets, but I know when something's wrong and when to act and when to respond. And if someone maybe let's, and then, you know, I love my new grads, but let's just, let's talk about new grads. You know, you're, you're freshly off orientation and you're seeing like this, this blood pressure that's on the lower side. You're not, you're, you're just, and you're so focused on the numbers. Cause sometimes we, we do that, right? We get so focused on the numbers, but then the patient is, you know, alert oriented. They're fine. They're perfusing well. And that might be their normal. You know, if you're still concerned or worried about it, Hey, it sounds like you can pick up the phone and, you know, do a consult. So there's a teachable moment. It's not, you're not going to be penalized. So I love that, that you've created a, a culture where it's okay to ask questions. Yes, absolutely. And I love teaching. And so I'm never like, oh, this wasn't an emergency. Why'd you call me? Instead of like, oh, sweet, teaching opportunity. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Let's talk about why when I see this blood pressure of 60 over 40, but the patient's telling me jokes, I'm not concerned because I know they're still perfusing their brain. Let's figure out maybe it's cuff positioning. Maybe it, I mean, there's so many things that can give you like a false blood pressure reading or when nurses are like, yeah, I don't like the way he's breathing. He's breathing really fast. Okay, so let's talk about why he's breathing fast. He doesn't have pneumonia. He doesn't have a pulmonary embolism. He's breathing fast because he's septic and he's trying to compensate and he's acidotic. He's trying to blow off CO2. I, I love breaking down the why behind why patients are doing what they're doing and just reminding nurses how important their role is. That Let's get on my soapbox for a second. That whole counting respirations thing. It's so important. It is like the best indicator of patient decline. And unfortunately, it gets missed so often because we just get in this habit of writing like 14 or 16 breaths a minute on every patient. But the nurses and nurse techs who take the time to actually watch that chest rise and fall, they're the ones that are calling me saying, um, they're breathing 40 times a minute. I mean, their oxygen level is fine, but they're breathing 40 times a minute. Like, is that okay? Like, thank you so much for letting us know that is not okay. Something is something's brewing. Let's get to the bottom and get treatment for the patient. Um, so yes, there's so much opportunity to get to teach in this role, which is why I love it so very much. I love caring for the patients and I love also supporting my teammates, which are other nurses caring for the patients in the hospital. So you you raise a very good point. And I am I know we have a lot of things going on. I literally am someone who's gonna count for a full minute. I'm going to, I mean, I don't do that 15 seconds you. times four because they might be okay for that 15 seconds. And then maybe they have a episode where the big, you know, short amount of time they're tachypnic or maybe they're apneic. Like, please do not tell me because the worst, because I will, when I see doc, when I see vital signs like that and that like here they are 16, 18, I'm like 42. I'm like, wait a minute. 
<laughs> I know this wasn't just an acute change. He was the pressure right. was like this. So let's do our due diligence, garbage in, garbage out. We can't identify a problem if we've not done a proper assessment. And listen, if you're listening to lung sounds, you probably need about a good minute to listen to lung sounds anyway. So you might as well count respirations while you're there. For rapid responses, how do the nurses um, know when to initiate it? Like, do you guys have guidelines? Do you, are you like frequently championing that you guys are in existence there? Because sometimes out of sight, out of mind, some people may not like, if you guys aren't there, they don't see you, they don't know. So I made badge buddies that have basic guidelines, like heart rate above this, blood pressure below this, respiration. I mean, just the basic stuff. But at the bottom of that badge buddy, it says, or any concern you have for your patient, even if it's just intuition. There's like a little caveat for that. I teach at every new hire orientation and just kind of let them know what our team has to offer. I let them know about the, the nurse consult option. And then we, when we have downtime, we round with the crash cart and do like crash cart scavenger hunt. And we go through like how to use the defibrillator, what's in each drawer. Nurses have a chance to find all the things and feel more comfortable with the big scary crash cart. Um, and then again, just reinforcing, call us anytime, guys. Never be afraid to call. You know, we're your friendly rapid response nurses. We're not going to just like shift in the culture of like, oh, no, I had to call a rapid and the big scary rapid response was going to come and be condescending towards me because I didn't know what to do. No, I'm smashing all of that dogma. Rather, rapid response nurses are your best friend. We are your backup. We are here to support you. We care as much about your patient as you do. So when I show up, I'm never like, get out the way. Rapid response is here. <laughs> Instead, it's like, hey, guys, what's going on? How can I help? And I'm scanning the room very quickly, figuring out what's missing, delegating as needed. But I don't need to jump in and like be the hero because all of us play a role in saving this patient's life. So I feel like my role, my, I am serving the patient best by kind of taking a bird's eye view of everything, figuring out what's needed and, and helping other nurses kind of do those other important roles. Because even if I'm a great critical care nurse, I cannot save this patient by myself. I'm relying on every person in the room. And so making sure that everyone knows all the roles that are needed. When the patient's crashing, you need someone on airway. You need two compressors. You need a runner. You need someone getting the backboard. So we, there's so many different roles that can be played. It's not just me. Oh, thank God. The rapid response nurse is here. I can step away. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I need you. <laughs> we need to do this together. And so just kind of shifting that paradigm a little bit. The other thing we do, which I feel like has helped a lot, is we do, um, we call it the lifesaver reward. And so, again, I don't want the hero just to be, oh, the rapid response nurse came and, you know, they initiated ACLS or whatever. Oh, no. The lifesaver was the person that found that patient and spoke up and advocated. That's the lifesaver. That's where it all started. And so we do this lifesaver reward to recognize those heroes that are like, uh, that's not right. I'm going to call a rapid response or I'm going to advocate for this patient or um, so many nurse consults that ended up with the patient declining, but that nurse got interventions early on. And so it leads to a great outcome for the patient. It doesn't have to be like, and then I jumped on the chest and I see it through life. Oh, no, it's I picked up the phone and I got things rolling for this patient. I put my foot down and I spoke up and I advocated and I would not take no for an answer until someone did a CAT scan or whatever it is. When the nurse was playing an important role of saving a patient's life, not just the CPR, not just the bagging, not just the intubation. That to me is a true lifesaver. So we just like to recognize those nurses. And I feel like that's helped to shift the the culture to where nurses feel like, oh, yeah, it's not I don't have to say sorry for calling a rapid. Instead, it's like, oh, yeah, I called a rapid today. I called a patient declining and I did something about it and I saved a life. So that's been a big aspect of my role that I feel like is important and shifting the culture. So it's not just do I have the clinical competence to respond to emergency, but do I have the soft skills of like working with people 
and the emotional intelligence to kind of read the room and see who can handle what task. And um, it's a lot more to it than just slinging up an and, and doing CPR. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, I mean, education, when nurses are educated or um, supported, they feel empowered to take action and to do things. They feel like, okay, they're not, they're not worried about being scrutinized or, or made to feel like, oh, I can't handle my patient. It's like really, yeah. this is an extension of your, this is your nurse buddy outside of your unit that's here to help that's you great. with your patient. And one of the things that I've noticed when, when I've seen patients, when I've seen nurses call rapid responses, I've, I've seen a variety of levels of nervousness or anxiety. It's like, what do I do? And they get like, like, oh, I'll go get this. I'll go get, no, no, no. If this is your patient, I need you at the bedside with me as we, you know, break this thing down and see what's going on. And so I don't know. And I know different hospitals will do different things. But uh, many of the places that I've worked at, when they people initiate a rapid response, sometimes, you know, there's kind of this uh, checklist to help the bedside nurse prepare as they're waiting for the rapid response team to come, like, you know, set a vital signs, check a blood sugar, uh, make sure you have a patent yeah. IV, bring the crash cart close by to the patient's room. And so like those are things to help the bedside nurse be prepared. And where I've worked before, we actually did an, what we called an alert class. And it was called uh-huh. Acute Life-Threatening Events and Recognition and Treatment. Um, it was a one-day multidisciplinary course where we, you know, we actually had, we'd have respiratory therapists, nurses, uh, doctors, you know, d- people of different specialties coming in together to work through, we'd go through um, obviously some anatomy, physiology, disease process type of things, interventions. And then we worked as did case studies together. So which was really good. It, and it also helped us understand the perspectives of like, I'm a nurse and I'm thinking this way, but your RT, you, maybe you're not as concerned about something because this is the lens in which you're viewing it. So we got to actually, you know, interact in that sense, because sometimes what our nursing priorities may be viewed differently from a different specialty. So really bring that multidisciplinary team in uh, was important because at the rapid responses uh, that I've that I've worked at, usually, um, and at a minimum at different hospitals, I've seen the uh, rapid response nurse or still, unfortunately, the ICU nurse uh, and respiratory be the uh, first initiators to respond. And then when it's when it shifts to code blue, that's when it brings in um, perhaps one of the senior residents and the pharmacists and things like that. So we provided that type of education. Uh, it initially went out to obviously the rapid response nurses, the CNSs and educators. Then we rolled it out to unit charge nurses and then preceptors. But it was kind of a rap when it got to the acute care nurses, it was like the rapid the rapid response class for the non-rapid responders. And I have to say, nurses were so glad and felt so supported when they get that education or information. And then you have like you foster relationships between rapid response team and acute care nurses, because they already feel like they're drowning with their million and one patients that they have. To know that they have an extra set of eyeballs and someone who's willing to come to the bedside, I think they love it. They love it and they feel supported. So Sarah, let me just also ask this. To to become a rapid response nurse, let's say I'm listening, like we have people who are listening at various levels. They're like, you know what? That sounds really cool. I want to be like that when I grow up. I want to do that exactly. How does one maneuver in their career, experiences, certifications to get to become a rapid response nurse? Because I'm sure there's someone out there who wants to, like, that's what I want to do. Well, it is a dream job, but I'm a little biased. I love it so much. So at least at our hospital, I think most of this way, you either have to have 
couple years experience in the ER or a couple years experience in the ICU. Some places require both. At our hospital, it's three years either in ER or three years in ICU. And we require all our response nurses to be certified in their specialty. So either CCRN, critical care registered nurse, or CEN, certified emergency nurse. Obviously, they have to have ACLS and BLS and all those emergency certifications that you would need in either role, ER or ICU. So that's like minimum is can you be clinically competent and a resource in the ER? And can you be clinically competent and a resource in the ICU? Minimum. What I look for since I do the hiring for my team is also, are they preceptors? Do they like to teach? Because like you said, some people can be really good, but they are not very good at explaining what they're doing. And that's an important aspect of what we do. So do they are they preceptors and do they like to precept? And then there's also just like, are they generally positive people? Because I don't need some negative Nancy showing up and be like, what's going on in here? Oh my gosh, this is crazy. Mama. No, I need someone who has the ability to elevate everyone in the room and to build people up and empower them. Like that's how we all work the best together. Someone who's going to come in and just slash people to pieces. It's not going to help this patient. If I show up and I'm rude and condescending today, okay, that's going to affect patients in the future because nurses will be afraid to call me in the future and they will delay and delay and delay because they don't want me and Sarah to come make them feel stupid. So I don't want how I'm acting to affect any future patients. So it's, I'm looking for a clinical competence that they can prove through their certification, but also a certain personality type and leadership skill set that will help them to lead the team in the rapid response um, role. So it, it's, it's definitely a leadership position. So if you are listening and you're like, I love emergencies, I love responding to emergencies, that's cool. Do you also like preventing them? <laughs> Do you also like coming alongside a nurse and investigating and looking in the chart and reviewing the labs and advocating to the provider and, and providing education if it's not an emergency? So it's not just CPR and code blue all day. Like I said, that's like less than 5% of what I do is code blues. Most of what I do is rapid responses and nurse consults to prevent the rapid responses and educating nurses at the bedside. So it is awesome. It's a super rewarding role. I mean, literally everywhere I go, people are like, oh, thank God you're here. <laughs> so it's very nice to be so appreciated. But also everywhere I go, we're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Is everything okay? I'm like, yes, I'm actually just going to the cafeteria. <laughs> nope. Yep. We're fine. I'm just checking on a patient with a high muse. Like everything's good. <laughs> so there's definitely a little like trigger when people see me coming, but it's, it's so rewarding. So if you're out there, go get experience in the ER or the ICU, get certified in your specialty and make yourself a resource in your home unit. Because if you want to be a rapid response, you're going to be the resource for the entire hospital. And so make sure that you are doing that already in your, in your smaller piece of the, the puzzle because you're about to be there for every single person. So, Absolutely. And I think, I mean, even just to complement that, I, rapid response nurses, I believe, are always looking for like, okay, what's going on? Very proactive in your approach to care turning up every little stone, like, okay, well, what was the lapse? What was this? Okay. When's the last time we did a chest x-ray? Did we do a chest x-ray today? What are the, you know, you're asking tons of questions. So, you know, you really, I think rapid response nurses get really advanced in their uh, understanding and interpretation of diagnostics and lab tests, their physical assessments. I mean, you're going to go there to the patient. You're going to be listening and looking and stuff like, oh my gosh, did you know that he had this diastolic murmur? Like, what's going on? Like, you're going to be doing all of these things. They're like, wow. That's one of the things I, I love about taking care of patients. I'm always proactive and asking because I always feel like, what else is there? 
what else is there? Did we did we look at everything to really understand why they might be, you know, taking uh, taking a turn? And then I'll also say this, guys. Sometimes we could do the best job. We've done everything. No one's done anything wrong. No one's overlooked anything. And sometimes our patients will still deteriorate. So um, just because a rapid response nurse comes and or you need that resource doesn't mean that you did anything wrong or that you missed anything. It's just an opportunity for someone to come and just take a second look. If there's something we missed or overlooked, okay, but maybe we did it. And, you know, I'm just here to support and see what can we do now moving forward. So Sarah, I mean, gosh, this has been such a great conversation. We've got to bring you back and talk about some other things because I'm sure we get, I get lots of questions that people always ask, well, how do you get there? Like they're looking for mentors. They want to know what the next step is. They want to advance their knowledge and which hence leads me to your podcast. So before we leave today, you got to tell us more about the rapid response RN podcast that you do. Like, uh, how do we check it out? Tell us more about it. So people who are listening and they're like, oh my gosh, I want to be like Sarah when I grow up, where can they go to follow and listen and actually start learning? Like these are great nuggets and tools, guys. Do not underestimate learning through storytelling because Sarah's going to tell you about her, you know, HIPAA compliant stories. Um, and there are tons of learning opportunities in them. So Sarah, where can we learn more about your podcast and also more about yourself? Absolutely. So my podcast should be on every podcast platform. It's called Rapid Response RN, which is like just my job title. <laughs> um, and then I'm on social media with the title, The Rapid Response RN, so TikTok or Instagram. I'm on TikTok a lot more, though. I'm still, I feel like an old lady when it comes. To, sorry, I'm on Instagram a lot more. I feel like an old lady when it comes to TikTok. And then I have an online course, actually. It's called Rapid Response and Rescue. It's just one hour and one CEU. For me, I get the same questions all the time. And so I took all those questions and made them into a course. What do you do when you walk into a patient's room and they're crashing? What's the first thing you do? What do you look for? What are you assessing? Um, how do you know if they're stable or unstable? Like that kind of stuff. Just a good framework for responding to emergencies. I also talk in the course about how I manage myself internally when the patient's crashing because my like my fight, flight, or freeze is initiated. I'm scared. My hands are shaking. I'm breathing fast. How do I manage that personally so I can be the best for my patients? So I talk about how I uh, kind of channel my sympathetic nervous system. Um, but yeah, so the course is available, rapresponseandrescue.com. And that's the best way to find me. Listen to my podcast, check me out on Instagram, and then there's the course if you're interested in taking it. So Sarah, thank you so much. That's great. You know, you guys, make sure to check out her podcast. Tons of great information. Um, and I think in a future episode, I'll be joining Sarah and talking about um, a particular case that I've had. So yeah, stay tuned for that. Yes. Yeah, so thanks so much for tuning in. This is really a good episode. You really, really got to share this with your friends, your classmates, your colleagues, your unit practice council, maybe your manager, maybe your educator on your unit. Shout out to nurse.org. If you haven't already, visit their website at nurse.org. Tons of great information, professional practice, policies, uh, things going on in the community, things that we as nurses should just be aware of and familiar with um, and kind of guide us to our day-to-day of what's going on. I'm Nurse Alice. I love chatting with y'all. If you guys want to contact me, you can email me at nursealice at nurse.org. And hey, we also have a number that you can text or leave a voicemail to. That number is 725-910-9676. Let us know what you thought of this podcast or hey, if you have a question or comment or want to be a guest on a future episode, you can let us know there as well. So guys, Leave your ratings review on your favorite podcast platform. Let us know what you think. Did you like it? Did you love it? Was it the best thing since sliced bread? I know it is. So please go ahead and mention that because we'd love to uh, share that. That helps us get the podcast out um, and gets our ratings up so we can bring more episodes to you. 
So until next time, guys, please um, make good choices, be kind to one another, and look well, my friends. Thanks for listening to Ask Nurse Alice. Visit nurse.org for nursing career, education, and community resources. 